Nice. First John, we are going to be uh, looking this morning, First John chapter 1, and we're going to be going through chapter 2, verse 6. But before we start out, I'm going to give you a fair warning. Fair warning. This morning, I am going to use a dirty word. Yep. My, did you hear the first person respond? My wife. Uh, I'm going to use a dirty word, and it's not the kind of word that you use in polite company. It's not the kind of word that you would not, you definitely you wouldn't use it, want to use it around the dinner table. You don't use it on Facebook, and you definitely don't use it at work. It's one of those words that when, when you say it, it somehow has a way of thickening the air, and people around you look at you and want to say, did you really just say that word? But we're mostly grown-ups here. Sorry, kids. Going to be violating your ears in a little bit. So we're all going to kind of keep it in perspective. We can handle a little bit of adult language here and there, right? We do it in our workplace all the time. So are you ready, Mark? Sin. I know. That word for the religious is one of those like, wow, I, I kind of love that word and I'm going to nail people with that word. But for some, it's one of those antiquated words. It's for the small-minded. And trust me, religious, religious people really don't like that word either unless it's applied to others, right? But seriously, who wants to sit around and talk about murder and rape and racism. Uh, and honestly, who wants to sit around and talk about lust? Or thinly veiled greed? I mean, we don't want to talk about hungry people while our own dinner table sags. I don't want to talk about the idols that I make out of my marriage, out of my family, and out of the American dream. I don't want to talk about that kind of idolatry. And I, and that, or that I cling to what I have and give only when it is safe and easy. Or even that I forgive when it is safe and easy. I don't want to talk about my desire for influence, which honestly is a nice and safe way of saying power. Or that, my, or that I have this desire for security, which we could also really call wealth. I don't want to talk about my jealous eyes or my envious heart. At least not out in the open. I mean, we're too smart for that, right? It lurks beneath the surface. It's hiding. It's waiting to pounce. Just like my pride waiting to come out. I have a way of saying, I deserve better. I need more. The world owes me something. And by gosh, God owes me something. And when I do not get it, when I don't get what I want, the thing, when things don't go according to my plan, there are bursts of anger. Anybody else? 
bursts of anger. I find myself fighting for myself. I need approval. I hunger for praise. I'm indifferent to the needs of other people. I'm suspicious and I am absolutely skeptical. I can judge anyone who is not like me and quite honestly, I don't care. Listen, those among you who are without any sin, go ahead. Go ahead. Cast the first stone. That's right. Go ahead. Go ahead and take that dirty word right out of your vocabulary. Sin. It's not a word that anybody really wants to hear. So that's not the normal way that I start a sermon. Usually what I want to do is I kind of want to give you kind of a nice little story bridge that will connect things, right? Maybe to some historical figure. Usually I try to get, get something that kind of grabs your attention, that ties to the passage that we're going to study. I usually don't try starting out by kind of punching you in the face and make you afraid of that. I'm going to use a dirty word. Some of you may have liked it. Some of you may have hated it. But there's one thing for sure. It probably provoked you in some way. It got your mind to be thinking. And that's what this book that we are going to be looking at is going to be about. It's an important book because this book explains to us what true, true Christianity is all about. It's going to cut through all the clutter of our, our lives. It's going to cut through all of that. And it's going to ultimately get to the heart of the matter. And that heart of the matter is what does it really mean? What does it really mean if we throw everything else aside and we get down to the core? What does it look like to really be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian? We love that term. How can we make sure that we've got the real thing, the real deal? Because the worst thing in the world would be to go through our whole life and come to the very end and find ourselves before God and for Him to say, I don't know you. Who are you? You said, Lord, Lord, you did all these great things, but quite honestly, I don't know you. We don't want to get to the end of our life and realize that we missed the point. That we've based our whole lives on a, a counterfeit faith. So 1 John has a very important <clears throat> message for us. And we need to pay attention. So friends, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Follow along with me as we read 1 John chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 6. And my friends, I want to encourage you. It's a short enough of a book. This can be your devotional read for the next five or six weeks every morning. Read through it. Get familiar with it. But listen to it right now. 
that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the, the word of life. The life, that, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be what? Complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say, if we say we have fellowship with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is just. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing you these things, these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him, but whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected by this we know we may know that we are in him and everybody together says whoever says ought to walk in the same way in which he walked friends this is the word of the lord you may be seated so as a courtesy before we jump into this, we need to understand what is the context of this, this book. This is our first time in uh, this section of Scripture. And you'll notice that uh, 1 John is a set, part of a set of books that is named in a very boring kind of way. 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And so, th this is a series of letters that is written to the church that is found in Ephesus. So, we have a whole other book, an epistle called uh, The Letters to the Church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. 
And so um, the author isn't named anywhere in the, like normally in letters that you find, Paul, an apostle, Peter, an apostle. It's not listed in any way like that. But church tradition says that it was written by the apostle John, one of Jesus' chosen disciples, the son of Zebedee, and he was also known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was almost like, if you're allowed to have favorites, that disciple, that intimate, close disciple. He was also often referred to as the disciple at the Last Supper that reclined on Jesus. And this book was written towards the end of John's life. We don't know for sure, but I tend to think that this tradition is right. And we don't know, um, what we don't know is how it was written, but we do know that whoever wrote it, assuming it was John, claims to be an eyewitness. His feet were on the ground. He was geographically in a place to eyewitness Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry. He saw it firsthand. We also know that it was written to the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was kind of the great city center of all of Greek life. It was, it was kind of the, the place. It's, Ephesus would kind of be like New York or Chicago or maybe somewhere out in the East Coast. A great cultural center where all kinds of different lives and religious views and values kind of all came together. And so when the gospel came to Ephesus, came to this area, it exploded. It just took off like gangbusters. But there were also issues. With growth also comes challenges. So when the Apostle Paul arrived with the elders from Ephesus, he warned them this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your your own will rise men speaking twisted truths to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. It was at this meeting in Miletus that Paul weeped on the, on the shoulders, on the chest of these men that he loved as he was leaving them, knowing he would never see them again. And he had bad news. People are coming, and they're coming to tear the church apart. And he was right. By the time John is writing this letter, perhaps around 90, 95 AD, a controversy had torn the Ephesian church apart. A group within the church had seriously misunderstood and seriously distorted the gospel. Things got so bad that a group left the church and they were still trying from their outside, trying to influence the inside of the church. So when John, when John writes this letter, he is writing to a church that has been split by, varying different, by very different views of what is the gospel. What is the core? So there was a lot of relational pain. 
hurt. Relationships have had torn. You know what ha- happens when relationships get really close and tight and then all of a sudden there's a rift? It's not just a, oh, we'll see you later. Part of your heart is broken and torn as that relationship is strained. But there was also, secondly, we also see that there's a lot at stake. In fact, we got to ask the question, why even bother with Christianity if you, if you can't be sure of what the message really is? And so John writes these letters. And they're not normal letters that you would find in the rest of the uh, Old Te- or New Testament. It's, it's a lot easier to preach, I'll be honest, to preach through the book of Ephesians. It's got a clear beginning and middle kind of progression that it's going through the whole thing. You, you could easily preach through the book of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. You could go through 1 Peter, even the 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. There, there's, there's a flow, but this is very different. 1 John doesn't follow the normal formula for writing letters at all. And as you get into it, you realize that John comes in with a strong punch. So here's a little bit of technical language. He uses an epideictic style. An epideictic style. In other words, it's a rhetorical kind of style where he uses a lot of praise and he uses a lot of blame. So you're going to feel that even in our first reading this morning. If you're this, you're this. If you're that, you're that. And so it's kind of a, he uses it to get a point across. It's kind of the in your face. He's not trying, to, it's not meant to try to convince you of anything. No. He writes in an absolute black and white style. He wants to strengthen your belief. Not convince you. He wants to strengthen your belief in what you already believe to be absolutely true. It's written to people who already believe the right things with the purpose of strengthening them in those beliefs so that they won't wobble. So when it all hits the fan, when trouble comes their way, they can say, no, stand firm. This is what it means to follow Christ. So it probably won't convince anyone who doesn't already believe these things, even though there's some really nice kind of uh, ways that he talks about love later on in this. But it will strengthen those who already do believe. So John has an important message about what true Christianity is. And my friends, this is an opportunity for each and every person. I don't care how long you've been on this journey following after Christ. It is an opportunity for every single one of us to ask the question, do I understand what true faith in Jesus Christ is about? Or am I just jumping through hoops? In today's passage... John makes it clear that as opposed to what all these false teachers taught, Christianity is about two things. Two things. How do we know we're getting Christianity right? John gives us two ways to make sure that we are on track. Listen again to the first four verses. That which was from the beginning 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So do you want to make sure that you are on the right track with Christianity, with following Christ, with being a follower of Jesus? Here's the first thing that you need to know to make sure that you are on track. Number one is, when your Christianity is all about the real and historical Jesus. Some of you are going, man, this is going back to 099 Christianity. Give me some meat. I can't give you meat until we, we nail this down. It's all about Jesus. It, and if you get Jesus, if you get Jesus right... And all that he is about, everything else is going to fall into place. If you get Jesus wrong, we are going to be in a whole heap of trouble. Everything else rises and falls on this point. So here's what the first few verses of 1 John will teach us. That Christianity is about an actual historical flesh and blood person named Jesus who lived in a time and a place in history. He is real. And Christianity is rooted in the dust and the dirt of, of Christianity. It's about a real man that you can go up to and pinch him and say, he go, ouch, that hurt. He is a real human, sorry, He's a real human being. And if he actually walked on these dusty roads of Judea and Galilee, and if people like John actually saw, heard, and touched him, then Christianity stands on its own two feet. If the historical person named Jesus didn't ever exist, if he's a myth, if he's a figment of our religious imagination, and if he's just a truth in our hearts, but not a reality, then honestly, friends, Christianity is bunk, and it's a waste of time. Christianity is all about a real historical Jesus. And according to John, Jesus either existed or he didn't. And if he existed, then we have something worth believing. If he didn't exist, then, then friends, don't, don't even kid yourself. You, don't, you have nothing worth believing. And that would be the fatal blow of Christianity. But John says, we can believe. We can believe. John heard Jesus. He saw 
Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He touched Jesus. We can believe in this Jesus, John says, because of the eyewitness testimony about Jesus is absolutely so compelling. So let me just pause right here and tell you that our church rises and falls on the real historical person of Jesus Christ. We're not a church that says, hey, when you come in these front doors, the back doors, wherever you choose to come in, when you come in these doors, we want you to check your brain at the door. Just believe. We want you to not just take a leap of faith in some random kind of feel-good kind of message. No, we want you to look at the evidence because we have nothing to hide. We want you to look at the evidence. So I think uh, you'll find that Greg Kokel is right. He said this. Greg Kokel is a, uh, an apologist who John Meskus has a crush on. Right? It's, you can have a man crush on somebody who's really smart. And Greg Kokel is one of them. He wrote in a book called The Story of Reality this. People who think Jesus never existed are simply not acquainted with ample research done even by secular historians that provide abundant evidence for his life. The idea that Jesus did not exist at all is drivel. And real historians know it. So I'd encourage you to explore Christianity fully. Get down deep and dirty in it. Examine the evidence. Read books like Tim Keller's Making Sense of God. Pull it out. Find it. Get it on Amazon. Making Sense of God by, by Tim Keller. It's, it's all about Jesus, the real man who walked on earth. But there's one more thing that we need to notice about the reality of who this Jesus is. The truth, according to John, is not just a system. It's not a theory. It's a person. It's a person. And all roads of true Christianity run through this person of Jesus. He is the beginning. He is the middle. He's the end. He's the start. He's, he's the middle of the story. And it's all, ultimately, if you read Revelation, it's all about him. That's the culmination. Jesus. It's all about him. So once we deny Jesus... John says that we lose everything. We get Christianity right when we make our faith not about morality, my friends. We get Christianity right when we don't. It's not about how we vote. It's not about who's in office. It's not about all those different things. It's not about the, your involvement in ministry. That's not what, what this is all about. You get Christianity right when Jesus is the center of absolutely everything. But secondly, we get Christianity right when we make it about the real Jesus as the solution to our real sins. 
It's one thing to believe in the, the reality of a historical Jesus. I believe that there, is an Abraham, there was an Abraham Lincoln. I believe that there is a, a man named Caesar Augustus. I believe that there was a man named... You could fill in all the blanks. I believe that there's real historical people. and You can believe that there's a, a real historical Jesus... But John goes one step further. It's not enough that you believe that he's an historical person. He makes this statement, which becomes a major theme through all of 1 John, and he'll repeat it over, my friends. He will repeat it over and over and over. You're almost going, okay, we got it. We got it. And, and so he, he says, here's what the message is. Verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Okay, what does that mean? When, when you think about it, light is a wonderful metaphor for, for God. It's, it's inadequate. It's not the full scope of who he is, but it's a wonderful part picture of who God is. A li- light allows and sustains life. It makes life a lot more pleasant and safer than when you are in dark. Light reveals. Not only that, but light is fundamentally, light is fundamentally incompatible with darkness. Light cannot coexist in the same place with darkness. And that's exactly what John means in this passage. God is light. He is characterized by absolute moral perfection. And because God is light, it is impossible for God to be in any kind of relationship with darkness. It's impossible. God's righteousness, His holiness, His Perfection and our sin, your sin, my sin is absolutely fundamentally incompatible. The two cannot coexist. Do we understand that? God's holiness, your sinfulness cannot coexist. They are incompatible. And that means that we have a very very big problem. Because there's not a person here who's not a sinner, including me. God is fundamentally incompatible with sin. But it is not God's life that is at risk here. It's ours. The fundamental standard of morality that God requires, He requires, He demands, is perfection. I know you quite well. And you know me well enough that we suck. That our lives are sin-filled. I I text enough of you to say, hey, how can I be praying for you? How can I encourage you? Where are you at in life? I have conversations. And I, I hear your stories. And you know my stories as well. So, if God requires perfection, and if we don't meet His standard for perfection, there's no way that we can have a relationship with God. So, 
So we have a problem. How do we deal with this sin issue, this sin problem? It's not just an issue. It's not just a challenge. It is a true life or death challenge. John explains two ways to deal with it that are wrong and one way that is right. The two wrong ways are about denying that sin is a problem. And the right way is to admit that it's a problem and that we ultimately see that Jesus is the perfect solution for our lives. So there's two ways. Let's look at the two ways because I honestly, guys, it, it applies to you and it applies to me. There's two ways to deny that sin is a problem. Two. The first way to deny that sin is a problem is to think that it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's to think that you can live however you like as long as you believe in Jesus. It it seems in verse 6 that some people thought they could believe in Jesus and continue to live in darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We lie. And we do not practice the truth. It's a pure lie from the pit of hell. It's, it's believe in Jesus. And you got a free ticket to heaven. And you can live however you want to in this life. It doesn't matter. you got a straight pass. Listen, I'm, I'm a great sinner. But God is a great forgiver. What a perfect match. Isn't that how we really live? Our our sin really doesn't disgust us because somehow we have said, you know what? God will forgive it. I can keep doing these activities. I can live in this sinful way. I can do this, that, and the other thing. And, you, oh, I know it's wrong. The Bible says, but, you know, I'm pretty weak. I, but, or it pleases me. It makes me feel really great. Or it makes me feel powerful. Or it, I can turn my head and not really acknowledge it. These things are really great. God will forgive it. i got to pass. Do any of you live that way? Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. And you're a liar. And the truth doesn't live within you. You don't practice the truth. I do that. And if I can admit it, welcome to the show. You can too. We all do this. We we say one thing and we think that we got to pass. But John says, it's a big deal. Your sin is a huge problem. If you are going to continue in your well-known sexual immorality, in your financial dealings, if you are going to deal with this in your relational kind of way, if you are going to live this way in your private sector, you know, little, little world, and think that God doesn't matter to God or that he'll just give a pass on it because you believe in him, you're wrong. If you claim to have fellowship with Jesus, but continue to walk in the way of this world, my friends, listen. John says that you are lying to yourself. Don't follow Christ on Sunday and sin like hell Monday through Saturday. Don't show up on Sunday morning and come up here and say, 
body of Christ for you. Thanks be to God. Blood of Christ. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Put it over here and go sit down and sing a couple more songs. And never allow the reality of the gospel of Jesus, who is the real solution to your heart problems, to affect you and change you from the inside out. There is no compatibility with God and your sin. He hates our sin. That's number one. The second way to deny that sin is a problem is to think that you don't have a sin problem. Do you see the difference? The first is to think that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. God's going to forgive me. He's really nice. He's a good guy. You know, he understands. After all, Jesus walked. He understands my weaknesses. That's the first one. It doesn't really matter. We're kind of casual about sin. The second problem is that the reality is, Paul, I don't think that I have a sin problem. They think that they're not sinners. I read a story about the great Victorian preacher, Charles Spurgeon. And uh, he overheard a conversation. You know, even uh, Victorian preachers are good eavesdroppers. Heard someone say that they actually achieved sinless perfection. Well, in that moment, Spurgeon did absolutely nothing. But the next morning, do you know what he did? He poured a jug of milk over this man to test to see if it was true. Needless to say, this man wasn't sinless after all. Don't ever think that you are beyond the need of God's grace. The need, or the famous preacher, George Whitfield, understood that he needed God's grace every day. And this was one, a man who started the, a, a whole reformation, a, a revival in the United States. George Whitfield was a, a well-known preacher in his time, but he knew that he continued to sin every single day. This is what he said. I do not know what you may think, but I can say that I cannot pray but sin. I cannot preach to you or to any others, but I sin. I cannot do anything without sin. As one expresses it, my repentance wants to be repented of. And my tears need to be washed in the precious blood of my dear Redeemer. So our best duties are, are as so many splendid sins all at the same time. The best things that you do are still riddled with the pockmarks of sin. So before you can speak even peace to your own heart, you must not only be sick of your original and actual sin, but you must be made sick of your own righteousness. This is the other end, right? We, we got self-righteous folks who say, look at how good I am. There must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your own self-righteousness. It, it must be the last idol taken out of your heart. The pride of our heart will never let us submit to the righteousness, the true righteousness of Jesus Christ. But if you have never 
felt that you have no righteousness of your own, if you never felt the deficiency of your own righteousness, you cannot come to Christ. You have got to plead, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. I know my best acts are even sinful. Lord, I need you. Those should not be easy words. Those should be tear-filled words. Friends, our worship should even, because of God's hatred for sin and our sometimes denial of it, we meet at this beautiful thing called the cross, and it should lead us to a point of whole-body worship sometimes. Hands lifted, maybe on the ground, kneeling, eyes weeping, Hands raised, exclaiming, you are too evangelical. You are too bland. If this message of Christ does not move you. So what do we do? It feels kind of hopeless. Well, despite what my kids believe, I am actually a pet lover. I love animals. I grew up on a farm, and uh, they have been begging us for years to get a, a dog. <sighs> so let me tell you a little bit of a story. When I was teaching in Mokina uh, back in the day, I, I had a crazy whim. I, I went to an animal shelter, and... I didn't buy a little cute little chihuahua. I didn't buy anything cute and fuzzy. I bought myself uh, a great big Do- uh, Doberman Pinscher. Her name was Butch. Because she was mean and she was big and she, she commanded the room. But one night, as I was enjoying this pet, one night, sound asleep. When I sleep, I sleep hard. I woke up to a sound. And this sound, I heard my dog, Butch, retching. It's kind of like the sound, for those of you who are parents, with your kids, all of a sudden you are in a dead sleep, and all of a sudden they come into your room. You don't hear them coming into the room, but all of a sudden it's like, and you go, whoa, 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 what's going on? Where are you at? And you know, in superhuman strength, you find yourself uh, that you leap over the bed and the dresser and everything to grab a wastebasket so they might just get a little bit in there. But I did not make it in time with Butch. That dog was standing at the foot of my bed and ralphed on my comforter. <sighs> it was an amazing alarm clock. You know what you do with blankets like that? Blow them away. Those of you who are tight wads, you're going, no, you could probably wash that. Who? Really? <laughs> Throw it away. Get it out of the room. Dispose of it. Create a bonfire that will totally up- incinerate it. Burn it. Get it out. Now, but imagine... But imagine that you showed up, that I showed up this morning here at church wearing that blanket. Yeah, exactly. You'd say, 
dude, what was that blanket all about? <laughs> well, you see, it has my dog's puke on it, and don't you like it? It's a really nice blanket. Uh, so how was your week? Then you would look at me like, dude, you're crazy. What are you, sick? Throw that away. You don't wear dog puke all around. The reality is that we show up with dog puke all over us every single day. It's called what? Sin. Sin. And we act as if, I don't have it on me. Or it doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect anything. And John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, I love how he pleads with them. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I am pleading with you. Don't do it. But if anyone does sin, if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins. In other words, he comes in and takes the place. Not only does he remove it, expiation, he becomes for us sin. And not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus takes our filth. He cleanses us from our filth. He is our advocate and he is the one atoning sacrifice who paid for us since he's the one that we need. So how do we know that we are getting Christianity right? We get Christianity right when we make it about the real historical person, Jesus Christ, as the real and only solution for our sins. Friends, let's not leave this at a theoretical kind of level. Because it's really easy. You get this information, you go, okay, I got it. I can plug it into my little matrix here and I can walk away and go, oh, that was a good message. Do you remember his story about the dog? Yeah, that was really funny. But not remember that this is really where it, the rubber meets the road. If you continue sinning, willfully sinning, you are a liar. And there is no truth within you. We need to do, friends, we need to do something different today. Something other. So we are going to move towards confessing our sin. Our dog puke, if you will. And then we are going to Move to the Lord's Supper, where we'll come face to face with his answer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this in his book, Life Together. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. But it is the grace of the Grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the pious to understand, that confronts us with the the truth and says, you are, you are a sinner, a great and desperate sinner. Now come come 
as the sinner you are to the God who loves you.